The reading today is uh, from 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, to 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6. David and Mephibosheth. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul, to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They called him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? Your servant, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in both feet. Where is he? the king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel, in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, your servant, he replied. Don't, re- don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table, and he was crippled in both feet. David defeats the Ammonites. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, their lord, Do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks, and sent them away. When when David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, Stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become an offense to David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth Rahob and Zobah, as well as the king of Makar with a 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Let me add my welcome. Sorry we filmed that 
that video on the windiest day of the year um, affected things a little bit. I hope it was of some use uh, in explaining what we're trying to do as a little network of churches. We're in 2 Samuel. Uh, we're back to 2 Samuel. We left it in about July, something like that. Uh, and we're going to get all the way to the end of the book in the next um, few weeks or so. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our Father, as we've prayed already, we want you to speak to us these uh, strange stories from thousands of years ago. It is a wonder that you speak through them today, but we pray that you would, and you would change us, fashion us, to serve you better through them, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, um, are you a kind person? Well, yeah, of course you are, of course you are. I mean, you wouldn't be here. I mean, you're lovely people. Are you a kind person? The sort of person, a kind in the sense of uh, discerning, thinking about what other people are feeling, what other people would need, and um, helping them with those things. Are you a kind person? Or are you self-absorbed? That's slightly loaded, isn't it? Um, obviously, we're going to try and put ourselves on the kind line of things. Kindness. It's a, a divine attribute, as we'll see uh, a little later on. Actually, this chapter, particularly chapter 9 of 2 Samuel, is it's overwhelmingly concerned with kindness. It comes up a whole number of times. We'll see it in chapter 9 and into chapter 10. Chapter 9, verse 1, I want to show kindness, says David. And uh, on the, go, the chapter proceeds. Simple concept, kindness. Hard to understand. Quite a bit harder to do, practically. To be a kind person, to become a kind person. Consistently, sir, it's quite hard. And um, we need a little bit of help with that. We're returning then to uh, 2 Samuel, if uh, you remember or you know. Really, 1 and 2 Samuel, they're one book, essentially. One book concerned with providing a leader uh, for God's people. The chief character of the book is David. Really, he arrives on the scene, 1 Samuel chapter 15, and dominates all the way to uh, 2 Samuel, the end of uh, the book there, and just slightly into 1 Kings. And uh, David's life is really broken into two halves. And we've looked at pretty much all of the first half. 1 Samuel 15 to 2 Samuel 8 is the triumph of David. And next week we'll see he has an affair with Bathsheba. He kills her wife, sorry, uh, her husband. And um, he collapses. And he's not the same man after that. So really often commentators say 2 Samuel chapter 9 to certainly chapter 20 is the failure of David. Morally, he fails. And even though he's forgiven, psychologically, he fails. He's not the same leader after that event. So his affair with Bathsheba really cuts his life uh, as it's presented in Scripture in 2. So 1 Samuel 15, he's, uh, he's anointed as king. He triumphs over Goliath. He's on the run because the existing king, Saul, tries to take his life, a number of assassin- assassination attempts, but uh, he succeeds through, the, um, manages to evade them. Into the book of 2 Samuel, he becomes king, has to fight a few battles. And we left things really in July, 2 Samuel chapter 15, A little summary you get at the end of that section. All is well. David is established on his throne in Jerusalem. God has said, you and your descendants will have a kingdom forever. He's surrounded by a loyal retinue. Brilliant. So at the end of chapter 8, you get this little summary. Chapter 11, his life collapses. It's never the same again. So what we have in chapters 9 and 10 is since the pinnacle 
of King David. It's as good as he gets in chapters 9 and 10. And I mean, he has good moments, but really it's a slide after that. And what does the writer, what does the Bible want to emphasize of David at his pinnacle? It's his kindness, which is perhaps surprising. That is what is emphasized here. So chapter 9, verse 1 again. Uh, is there anyone I can show kindness to? Verse 3 of chapter 9. To whom can I show God's kindness? Verse 7. Don't be afraid, David says to Mephibosheth, I will surely show you kindness. Get into chapter 10, verse 2. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash. That's a very specific word in the original Hebrew, chesed. Kindness is good. Kindness, faithful love, loyalty. It's the same word in um, we had read at the beginning in Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great love, chesed, kindness, we are not consumed. That's what we're thinking about today, kindness. And we'll see, and says David is an example of a kind man, and we can learn some things from that, I'm sure. But supremely, David at his pinnacle, God's anointed king over the people, is for us a, a picture, a shadow, a hint of King Jesus and his kindness upon his people. And it may be that more than anything, it's a picture of that given to us, of David at his pinnacle. Okay, three little things to say. We'll look at the kindness and uh, three things. It's a covenant kindness. David shows a generous kindness. But it is a echo of and flows from divine kindness. Let's look at them in turn. First then, let's look at the uh, covenant kindness. So again, chapter 9, verse 1. David is king and he says, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness... For Jonathan's sake. Now, you have no background at all uh, to this. Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend. I think you could say it, to put it in those ways. Uh, back in 1 Samuel 20, David is on the run. He's fleeing for his life. King Saul wants him dead. King Saul's son is Jonathan. Jonathan is David's best friend. That's a pretty complicated friendship triangle going on right there. But uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David and Jonathan pledge themselves to one another. Not romantic about it, just they covenant, they promise, I will be loyal to you. It's not just a, a deal, a diplomatic deal. It's clear they had enormous affection, respect for one another. And in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel, Jonathan looks ahead to the future and says to David... Please, David, when you have conquered all your enemies, be kind to me and all my family. Literally says, uh, 1 1 Samuel chapter 20, show me unfailing kindness, David, like that of the Lord as long as I live. And when I die, do not cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies. So David's on the run, looks like David might be killed. But Jonathan says, look, I know there's going to come a time when you triumph and you defeat all your enemies. I'll probably be dead as well. When that day comes, please promise me you won't forget my family. Fifteen years later, David has triumphed over all his enemies. He sits on his throne and thinks to himself, I made a promise fifteen years ago 
to Jonathan, my brother. I need to honour that. It's not arbitrary then. It's not that just David sits on his throne, a bit bored, I've beaten everyone now. What do I do? Shall I just, a random act of kindness. Do you see that chap just before Christmas, some millionaire went round Tesco's uh, in, um, in a Manchester suburb and just dropped envelopes of a thousand pounds into people's shopping trolleys until he was arrested because they wondered what he was doing. But to just, he was slightly, slightly just, I thought I'd be randomly kind. It's not that here. David has made a promise. I will honour, be kind to the descendants of Jonathan. And that's what he's doing. So his kindness here is, it's a promised kindness. It's a, an obligated kindness if you can put it that that way. A covenant, a solemn promise. David has little choice here, if he's a man of honour, but to be kind. That doesn't sit so well with us, perhaps. I guess inherently we think to ourselves, if, if kindness is obliged, well, that's just a law, isn't it? Um, it doesn't feel particularly kind if you have to do it. Apart from the fact A consistent love does promise to be there, doesn't it? A love which matters, counts, is loyal, is always there. You tie yourselves to some people in love and say, I'm committed to you. An obvious sense, a very obvious sense would be in marriage. Husband and wife, covenant with one another. You stand up and say, I will love you in sickness and health, in richer for poor. It doesn't matter what happens. I have covenanted. I'll be there. I am obliged to be kind to you. Well, that's not much love, is it? Well, sometimes it's useful to have a promise. Sometimes you think, you're a bit of a pain to me today, but I have promised to love you, so I'll get on and love you. Sometimes the promise is very helpful in that regard. Happens in friendships as well. Need to be slightly careful with this. But there are, I would hope all of us to some extent have some covenant friendships. There are some whom we are absolutely committed to and will be there for. You can't do that with everyone. It's just impossible practically. But most of us, I hope, have some, two, three, four, who we're committed to being there. We covenant essentially. It's a love which is there when it matters. Uh, a number of years ago now, um, some will know my wife, my wife Carrie was in hospital for about three months and uh, carrying a child, we weren't sure if the child would live, weren't sure, and her life was in danger as well. But supremely three months in hospital is just quite boring when you're just sat in a bed and not allowed to move. Uh, and at that time there was a real sifting of our friends, to be honest. Because uh, some, who we thought were good friends, never bothered to come and visit Others, Buster Gut, you know, would hire babysitters, travel two hours for a half-hour visit and would just be there. And it was very striking. Sadly, I should really erase this, but sadly one conversation just always floats around my head. Remember one best friend of my wife rang up and said, oh, you know, what can I do? I said, we can go and visit. That's a bit awkward. Yeah. Yeah, it is. But, you know, it'd be a bit inconvenient this week. Oh, okay. Anything else I can do? No, no. Visit is what would be kind for you to do. Ah, I didn't really have that in mind when I asked or offered. No. No. What I didn't say, fortunately, was words. Words are easy. Kindness 
is there. It's always there. Now, that's very obvious to say in a marriage, but some, there are some friendships, I hope, that we're just committed to. We're there, we're faithful, we're loyal. There's a kindness underpinned by promise, obligation. We're not just there when it suits us. There's a covenant kindness in some cases. Covenant kindness. David goes a bit beyond that, though. Second little thing. There is a generous kindness to him. Let's speak up. So uh, what happens? What actually happens here? David desires to be kind to the house of Jonathan. He tracks down Zeba, who's a servant, says, yes, there is still one from the house of Jonathan. Jonathan's got one son left, Mephibosheth. Now, excuse me, Mephibosheth hasn't got a huge amount going for him. So we're told, verse 3, he's a cripple. He lives in Lodavar, which literally means no place. Where do you live? No place. I live in back end of nowhere. It's literally, literally what it means in uh, Hebrew. So he's, he's a cripple. He comes from a no place. He hasn't got a huge amount going for him. But David meets him and says three little things. Verse 7. Well, Mephibosheth comes before him, throws himself on the ground. My Lord, Mephibosheth. David says three things. Verse 7. First is this, don't be afraid. Verse 7, don't be afraid, David said to him, I'll surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Now that's a great relief. In the culture of the time, you become king and you kill anyone who's a threat to you. Now the former king was Saul, his son was Jonathan, his grandson is Mephibosheth. He's, he, he's a threat. He's from the former king, he's the former king's grandson. Now if you're politically savvy, you kill him. That's just what you do. So Mephibosheth comes before David, expects expects death. Don't be afraid. Because of your father, I'm not going to kill you. That's a great relief. But as I said, that's the sort of kindness that David is obligated to show because of his promise. But David's kindness goes beyond that. So second little thing, I'll be kind. Second little thing, I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul. In a stroke, Mephibosheth is loaded. It's just loaded. If someone came to you and said this afternoon, I'm going to give you a property portfolio of 500 properties in zone one. It's just yours. That's a lot of money. You've just been given, that's a life-changing sum of money. That's a lot of money you've been given right there. And this is a lot of land. Uh, it, it requires Zebra and all his family to look after it. That's at least 35 people are going to have to manage this property portfolio that Mephibosheth's just been given. I'm not going to kill you. Phew. I'm giving you a huge sum of money. Terrific. Uh, that's, things are going well. But that's at a cost to David himself. Former king's land became David's when he became king. So David is saying, I give you a great chunk of my wealth. This is a good day for Mephibosheth. So don't don't be afraid. I'm giving you my wealth, a huge sum of money. And third little thing, still in verse 7, you'll always eat at my table. That's privilege. So much so, it gets emphasized three times uh, further. So verse 10, Mephibosheth will always eat at my table. Verse 11, he ate at David's table. Verse 13, he ate at the king's table. That's because it's a big deal to eat at the king's table. I don't know about you. Personally, once I've eaten with the queen, Queen Elizabeth. Mm, 
Yes. <laughs> to clarify a little bit, uh, it wasn't actually at her table. It was a can- canapé sort of affair, and there probably were about 500 other people in the room. But not all of you have done it, nonetheless. Um, it felt like, you know, it felt like, a, you know, it felt fun. It was a little bit of a privilege to do that. To daily sit at the Queen's table, to share your cocoa pops with the Queen and your lunch, and to have that access, that is privileged. And so David says to Mephibosheth, Yes, you're the son or the descendant of my, sorry, you're the grandson of my chief enemy. I should kill you. Instead, I'm going to make you incredibly wealthy and sit you next to me at my table. That's very generous. It's risky as well. It's risky because he's putting a potential threat at the heart of power. Mephibosheth, if he desired, could build up a little network at the king's table at the king's court. He could meet the important people. He could sow dissent at the heart of power. So there's a risk here as well. A cost and a risk. But that, I think, is kindness. To genuinely be kind will involve cost of time to go and see people, meet with people, cost of money to help out in various ways. And it may well be risky. You don't know what will happen. It may be thrown back in your face. But that is a biblical kindness. In a not dissimilar way, Jesus uh, puts it a bit like this in uh, uh, Luke chapter 14. I don't know if we've got it. Luke chapter 14. Maybe, maybe not. Let me read it to you. Luke 14, verse 12. Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner... Do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Oh my goodness. When you're having a meal, don't invite people that will invite you back. I mean, it's not, it's not a rule, by the way. He's emphasizing kindness. It's, he's, Jesus is not legislating there in chapter 14. He's making a point. But that's just so wrong, isn't it? I mean, it's just countercultural to how we think. And you hear those sort of sentiments and think, but, but, but why would I do that? What's in it for me? Nothing. Kindness is not a transaction. You come for dinner, I'll bring the pudding. You come for lunch, and we'll go to you next time. Kindness is not a transaction, according to Jesus. It's giving. But people might abuse my kindness. I might be kind, and they may take advantage of me, yeah? That happens. Happened to David, didn't it? So he's kind to Mephibosheth, that seems to go well. And then he's kind to the Ammonites. I'll show kindness to them. And so he sends this delegation, I want to be kind to you. And they get sent back with half their beards missing and half their clothes missing and everything out. You know, that's, that's a pretty bad abuse of kindness. And then they gather an army and say, we're going to try and attack you now, David. Now kindness is often abused or thrown back in your face. Something happens. You're meant to stop us. Who who am I meant to be kind to? I can't be kind to everyone. That's just impossible. Yeah, of course, of course. That's complicated. 
New Testament will give us a number of principles. I've always found particularly helpful Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where the principle seems to be you help those who cross your path and you have the resources to. You help those primarily first in the New Testament who are believers and, and then others as you're able to. Rules of thought. It's complicated helping people. Being kind is tricky. Because there's cost and there's risk and we, they threaten our own comfort. Yeah? Yeah. Just like David, who gave away a huge amount of money and put his life slightly at danger. Why? Because he was kind. Tricky, isn't it? Are you kind? A kindness that is costly, risk-taking. Am I kind? I don't know. Consistently? Certainly not. Difficult, isn't it? So we need to know that there's a divine kindness, and we've received it. (laughs) Last thing, there's a divine kindness. Now, kindness is appealing. All of us want to be known as kind. I take it. I don't suppose anyone here, you know, if I did a quick straw poll, who wants to be known as kind? Yes, who wants to be known as unkind? Mm, Not many. We want to be known as kind, but moving in that direction, becoming kind people, it's hard. How do we become those who pay the cost? Biblically, it is to deeply know that we've received kindness. Kindness, chesed, big Old Testament word. 246 times you get it in the Old Testament. 75% of the time it is God. It's kindness to his people. So this kindness, this faithful love, It's supremely what God shows to his people. And when his people show it, it's an echo of that. I mean, even in our text here, that's made explicitly, that link. So 9 verse 3, I want to show God's kindness, says David. I want to be kind in the sort of way that God is kind. That sort of love and generosity. And so again, at this point in the narrative, David is an example to us. Yeah, I think that's fair. But supremely, he's a model, a pattern. God's kindness to us in Jesus Christ. And of course, primarily in this sort of passage, we're much more like Mephibosheth than we are like David. Which is not flattering. But is, I think, what we're meant to take away. Striking is that Mephibosheth, how is the first thing we're told about him, verse 3? He's crippled. The last thing we're told about him, verse 13, he's crippled. Now, either the writer has got a bit of a downer on people with lame legs, or he's really wanting us to notice this man is crippled. He's not deserving. He's unimpressive. The New Testament will be very clear. We're morally crippled. We can't earn our way before the Lord. We're undeserving before him morally, spiritually. We're crippled. Mephibosheth deserves death. He belongs to the wrong regime, the wrong family. Spiritually, well, yeah, that would be true. Naturally, we deserve death from God. Mephibosheth is living in exile in Lodavar. He lives in Nowhereville. Spiritually, we're exiled, separated, cut off from the Lord. We're a bit like Mephibosheth, spiritually speaking. 
How does the king, sorry, how does Mephibosheth respond then when he comes before King David? Well, he knows his place. Verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down, presumably quite hard if you're lame. He bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? That's quite a strong self-description. I mean, goodness, that's a year's worth of therapy if you think of yourself as a dead dog in modern culture, isn't it? A dead dog. And in the culture of the day, dogs are mangy scavengers. Not like 21st century Western world where, you know, dogs get bequeathed millions in order that Fifi can have her daily manicure and blow dry um, until she, you know, dogs get all these... You know, it's not that man dog is a man's best friend. Back then, a dead dog is despicable, disgusting, flea-bitten scavenger. Mephibosheth says, in the presence of the king, I'm wretched. And David says, I'm kind. And what you have there is a picture of the gospel. Because Mephibosheth's comment in verse 8, that's the sentence of someone who really understands the gospel and comes before God on their knees and says, I'm wretched and undeserving of anything before you. And the God's anointed King Jesus Christ says, but I am kind and give you more than you deserve. Much, much more. And that changes things. Now many of us, we, if you've been a Christian a while, we can forget that. It's very lovely when you see someone who's just become a Christian, a, a chap in his late thirties, um, just before Christmas, became a Christian, he just became a Christian, he just kept repeating, he I just can't get over how kind God is. I can't, I'm just blown away by God's love for me. I just can't get over it. And uh, you think, oh yeah, yeah, I've slightly forgotten. It is good, isn't it? It is surprising. Isn't it surprising, Matt, that he's been so kind to us? Yes. Yes, I know, I know that one. Yes, it is. But if you're a Christian, why? You can forget that. I mean, you're reminding. We're dogs. Spiritually speaking. But God is very kind. Very, very kind. How has he treated us? Well, just let me briefly repeat those points. With covenant kindness. That's how Jesus Christ treats you if you're a believer, with covenant kindness. Do you know what that means? That means he is obliged to be kind to you if you're a believer. Because he's made a covenant in his blood, he has promised to be kind, and that promise is sealed on the cross. So I'm hesitant, but it's true. He's obliged to be kind to you if you're a believer. Now, if you know that, that's very liberating. If you know that God has promised to be kind to you, it frees you up to pay a cost, to give of your time, to give of money, whatever it may be, because you know God has promised to be kind. There's a covenant kindness shown to us in Jesus Christ. And, of course, there's a generous kindness. He takes a dead dog and says, sit at my table forever. He takes people who are exiled and says, I'm going to treat you as if you're one of my sons. You can sit at my table. God says, I'm going to treat you like my son Jesus Christ. You can sit at the table with him. And if you know that generosity, well, again, it frees us to be kind with our own resources, our own time, efforts, energies. The kindness of the king, knowing the generosity of Jesus Christ in the gospel, 
to understand that we're dogs and deserve nothing, but he gives us wealth and access and privilege. That is a cause of great praise. But also, if we understand that, it liberates us, changes us to be kind in the way we treat others. Chesed, because of the Lord's great kindness, love, we're not consumed. For his compassion, it never fails. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we've already confessed this morning we fall short of loving you. We fall short of loving others as we should. Thank you that despite our failure, you love us in Jesus Christ. For those who know you, you are committed, promised, obliged to be kind to us. Thank you for that. We are so undeserving. You are so rich in your kindness. We praise you and ask further that that kindness would liberate us from selfishness, liberate us to become more consistently those who are kind to others. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.